music is always so good here, isn't it? Thank you, Audra and the music teams, um, for all of that. So when I was in uh, 11th grade, I don't even remember exactly why I chose to do this or what I wrote, but we had to write a paper um, about somebody we would like to meet um, who was dead. Uh, So I wrote a paper about the Apostle Paul. I, again, don't know why I chose to do that. What I wrote was probably theologically inaccurate, would be my guess. But for whatever reason at that time, I thought that it would be awesome to have a conversation with him. And really, that, that's rightfully so. We, we think of Paul today as being one of the greatest missionaries and church planters of all time. And that's, that's very true. His mission was to make the gospel known to all nations. And in fact, it's because of Paul and his work that the gospel eventually makes it to the United States of America because he gets the Macedonia call to go into Europe and the gospel spread westward. So in his time period, he had great success in his mission. The book of Acts shows his various journeys, um, shows uh, all the companions that he has, and reveals how he reveals the good news of Jesus Christ in every city, and he plants, and he builds churches, and he grows this mission of the gospel with the goal of eventually making it to Rome, which he did. He was in chains and imprisoned, but he made it to Rome and did the work of the gospel while he was there. He shared the gospel in the capital of the largest empire the world had ever seen. So it's because of Paul and his writings that we have the doctrines of salvation. We learn about the doctrine of justification and regeneration and uh, adoption into his family. Paul, Paul clarifies all of those things for us. In the history of the church, Paul becomes and is one of the greatest thinkers. In fact, if you were to go to some scholarly conferences, Bible conferences, things like that, Paul is the one who is most talked about of all biblical writers. We love Paul. We love the work that he did. We think nothing but positive things about him. But unfortunately, Paul doesn't live today. When Paul lived, this was not the case in his lifetime. He was not appreciated. He was not loved. He was not adored by all people uh, like he was. So, of course, he was opposed by those who fundamentally disagreed with his gospel message. That's to be expected. But Paul also faced opposition in some of his churches. And I think we see this most explicitly in his relationship with the Corinthians. So if you read through First and Second Corinthians, it becomes clear that Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is, at best, it's shaky. It's very, it's very up and down. Paul has extreme love for them, but they also seem to mistrust Paul in some areas of his ministry. By the time we get to the passage we're going to discuss today in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17, by the time that is written, the Corinthians likely had serious doubts about Paul's apostleship and about his capability for ministry. So th- this is important to set up this context because this 
this passage is written in response to some of the opposition that Paul was facing. And, and not just from outsiders, but Paul's concern was for the Corinthians who themselves were questioning him and questioning his ability to be a minister of the gospel. So in the Corinthians' eyes, Paul had a couple of problems. We'll discuss two of them today. There's certainly more than that. Uh, but, but first, Paul did not accept money from the Corinthians for his preaching of the gospel. So, so we would think of this as being um, an, an act of grace toward them, that he graciously shares the word of God free of charge to them. But they, however, did not think that way. To them, that it was free shows them that Paul's message was cheap. You get what you pay for. So there were other preachers who possibly came to the Corinthians, and they charged a lot of money for their message, for their teaching. So, so that teaching, that message has value. That teaching has worth. So the Corinthians started to shift and align themselves, potentially, with these other teachers and that preached a message that was contrary to Paul's gospel. So they charged for their preaching because their teaching had significant value. So, so the first problem that Paul had was that he didn't accept money. So, so they distrusted the uh, validity of his message. The second problem is that Paul's appearance was one of weakness. Paul, if you read his letters closely, you really don't even have to read them that closely, especially 2 Corinthians. His, his physical life was not one that we would want to have. You would not want to be the Apostle Paul in regard to the things that happened to him. So in the Corinthian correspondence, he, he talks about this. He was beaten, shipwrecked, poor, afflicted. He was beaten with the cat of nine tails 39 times less, or 40 times less one, however it's phrased, multiple times. He goes through this in the Corinthian correspondence. So to the Corinthians, Paul did not look like God's messenger. Because to them, somebody who was God's messenger would be exalted and radiant and have glory and have eloquence and have power and might and be elite. But Paul most certainly was not this. In fact, Paul looked like he was somebody who was being punished by God. That Paul's suffering was the result of him having some sort of inadequacy or Paul having some sort of deficiency in his ministry. And that's why he was being punished. So why would the Corinthians follow somebody who was under God's punishment? So Paul needed to respond to this, to these accusations. But I want to be clear, very clear about something. Paul was not concerned about himself as he clarifies this. He's not concerned of whether or not he is considered to be this great minister of the gospel. Paul is deeply concerned for the Corinthians, for to reject the life he was living and reject his message is to reject the gospel of Christ. To reject Paul because of his life situation is to reject the cross. The Corinthians' response to Paul's life in ministry revealed their misunderstanding of the gospel itself. 
So in this passage, what what Paul is going to show us is how God makes the gospel known. How God reveals and spreads and makes manifest the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first way he does that is through weakness. God makes the gospel known in and through weakness, and that weakness is evident in Paul's life. So let me read the passage real quick, and then we'll we'll dive in and, and discuss it verse by verse. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul, I think, answers, it's not uh, perfectly evident in the ESV translation, he answers the Corinthians' accusation that, that he is too weak, that he is suffering too much to be a good minister of the gospel. He answers them by agreeing with them. That, that he is weak, that he is suffering. He never denies the fact that he suffers and is weak and has a poor appearance. I think, actually, Paul takes it a step further than that. So, in, in 2.14, Paul, uh, he begins with, saying, but thanks be to God. He, he offers this thanksgiving. So, what this often does in, in Paul's writings when he has these exclamations, is it's, it's introducing a new section. And when he does that, the next couple of verses introduce themes that are going to be worked out within the next few chapters. So in 2.14, Paul is saying, but thanks be to God. And then he goes through, I suffer, and because of that suffering, I am a sufficient minister of the gospel. And that's going to be the theme from this point all the way through chapter 7, that, that Paul is one who suffers for the gospel, and it's because of that suffering that he is worthy to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that thanksgiving introduces this new theme that he is going to talk about, his sufficiency for ministry. So you would expect Paul, in talking about his sufficiency for ministry, to, to start to talk about his success and so, I mean, that would be very easy if you were the Apostle Paul, you would think, because you talk about, well, I planted this church, this church, this church, and this church. I've been on all these different missionary journeys. All these different people have gotten saved. All these different apostles have supported me and have verified my gospel. But Paul doesn't do that at all. He doesn't elevate himself or try to contradict what the Corinthians are likely saying about him. He actually takes their doubts to an extreme. So after his thanks to God, he says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So that, in the ESV translation, I think sounds like a pretty good thing to be led in triumph. So it has the appearance that God is leading them towards this end goal of triumph. But that understanding is not completely accurate. Um, it's kind of a difficult phrase to translate. Um, actually, the, the King James Version is um, 
even worse. And it's, it's because of John Calvin, actually. John Calvin had a problem with what, what the word here actually means. So, so he says, well, well, Paul can't be doing that. So, so the, the King James follows Calvin and actually says, Now thanks be unto God who always causeth us to triumph in Christ. So according to that translation, Paul is exalting himself, that, that God is bringing him triumph. God is bringing him victory. But that is not at all what the word means. The NIV translation actually is the best here and conveys the most proper meaning. And we, we will flesh this out if I read it. The NIV says, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So, so the, the proper meaning of, of the word is that, that Paul is actually being led as a captive, as a slave, as a bondservant in Jesus Christ's triumphal procession. So to understand what this triumphal procession is, we have to look some at what the Roman example is that Paul is going to be talking about. Um, so he's, he's pulling from this Roman cultural practice that, that would happen um, when uh, after Rome would go on a great military campaign and they, they would have a successful victory, they would go on these triumphal processions. They were essentially big parades through the capital of Rome. Um, but real quick, but before we get into Rome's practice, um, on, a, on a side note, but it, it's significant for how we apply this passage, it's really important to notice how corrupt, sinful, and evil the Roman Empire was. We often look at, look at our culture and think, well, our culture is so sinful. All of these bad things are happening. There's so much evil going on. People are getting farther and farther and farther from the truth of God's word that there's no, there's no hope. There's no hope for redeeming this. But if God can work powerfully in the midst of the Roman Empire like he did in the first century where the gospel spread, he can work powerfully today. So, so the difference between then and now is, is not that culture is sinful or that culture is more sinful. That has always been the case. It is the extent to which people rely on the power of God to act and move. That's what was happening in the early church. People were very readily and fervently and earnestly seeking God's power to cause the gospel to spread. And that's why they had that amazing impact on such a sinful empire. So the evil in our culture should not cause us to resign all hope. Instead, it should cause us to run with more earnestness to our God. It should cause us to plead for him to act in ways that can only be credited to him. Because he can transform anything if he can transform the Roman Empire. So. Back to this triumphal procession, and, and just note what, this, what these practices are. So, so this was a, a massive and extravagant parade, and it, and it celebrated the victories of, of great military campaigns. It celebrated the victories of the generals who led those campaigns. So they were designed to thank the God who was, who was deemed to be responsible for the victory, um, and then also honor the victorious general. So Josephus, which, who was actually a Jewish Roman historian in the first century, actually writes about one of these, and it's, it's when Titus overthrew Jerusalem in 70 AD. So, so this is Titus's um, 
triumphal procession that, that he describes. So it begins with Titus and his father, the emperor Vespasian, uh, emerging in purple robes, and, shout, and then all the soldiers shout all these praises and, and celebrate the victories of Titus and Vespasian and how wonderful they are. Then Vespasian would speak and offer some traditional prayers, and then they'd, they'd sacrifice to the gods, and then the, the pageant would begin. So the streets would be lined with people. This parade would start going through. There'd be incense and flowers, everything lining the streets. So, so everything would, would smell. Every, everybody in the city of Rome would know that this was happening. So Josephus actually describes then that some of the spoils of war like flowed through the streets like a river. So there were things like the gold, silver, ivory, tapestry, purple linens, golden crowns. Temp- objects from the Jewish temple. If you go see the Arch of Titus, they actually have depicted on there some of these objects celebrating that victory. And not only that, but also some of the scrolls of the Jewish law that, to show that Rome has completely conquered and Rome has complete authority and power and glory over other nations. So at the head of the procession were the captives, the prisoners the slaves, and the leader of the Jewish rebellion was named Simon ben Gioras. So these were all on display to show the invincible power, courage, and God-given superiority of the Roman army and of the empire of Rome. So then after, after all these captives would go forth and they would be dis- displayed as slaves, there would be uh, these, these platforms, which, which Josephus actually describes as being three to four levels high, and he doesn't understand how they, how they don't fall over. So what these platforms did is they, they depicted scenes from the battle. So for all the people who were just in the city of Rome and weren't actually part of the battle, they would depict all the evil things that the soldiers did to the people they conquered. They would depict them murdering and killing and humiliating and shaming the people of Jerusalem. And they would put this on display, like the Macy's Day Parade. But rather than Snoopy, it's, it's pictures of the Jews of Jerusalem being killed in this military campaign by the Romans. So after these platforms would go de- depicting the army, depicting how really how evil they were, the procession ended with Vespasian and his two sons, Titus and Domitian, uh, riding on horseback and being accompanied by the victorious soldiers. And it would end at the Temple of Jupiter. At the Temple of Jupiter is where Simon, the leader of the Jewish rebellion, was brought, and he was mocked and beaten and humiliated and eventually beheaded to the shouts of celebration. So this was all then concluded with a celebratory meal that rejoiced in the peace of Rome that was secured. So this triumphal procession is what Paul chooses to use to depict his life. So there are various characters. There's the emperor, there's conquering general, there's the soldiers, and there's the captives. So so if Paul is being led in triumphal procession, that means he is being led as a captive. He is being led as a slave. 
He's not the victorious general that the Corinthians want him to be. They want him in the position of Titus. But, but Paul, Paul tells the Corinthians, look, I'm not, I don't just suffer. I'm just not just weak in appearance. I'm a slave. I'm a captive. I'm a bondservant. So Paul considers himself as a prisoner of war. He has been conquered by God himself. And those captives generally are led to their death or greater suffering or sold to further enslavement. As you see, Paul was an enemy of God and his Messiah. He was an enemy of God and Jesus Christ. Because on the Damascus Road, he was going to capture more Christians and humiliate them and beat them and possibly kill them. But on his way there, Paul was conquered by Christ and he became a slave of Jesus Christ. And the purpose is the same as the Roman triumph, is to display the glory and the power of the conqueror. So this seems like a, a repulsive thing for Paul, for Paul to talk about. But if you, if you look at how Paul refers to himself throughout his life, it's very consistent. In Romans 1.1 1, 1 and Titus 1, he considers himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Our translations will translate it servant, but it's, it's the word doulos. It, it means slave. It means bondservant. In Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy are called slaves of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul was and what he considered himself to be. So the question is why? Why, why does Paul consider himself this way? Why does Paul decide to defend himself and defend his ministry by not just acknowledging that he suffers, but stating that he is a captive who suffers? He does suffer, and not only that, he is a conquered captive who is being led to more suffering. So Paul considers himself this way because he believes, and he's right, that his suffering is the means by which God is revealing himself and his gospel. By leading Paul in triumphal procession, he makes known the fragrance of the knowledge of him through Paul in every place. That's what Paul says in the second half of verse 14. God makes known through this triumphal procession the fragrance of the knowledge of him through Paul and his companions and his ministry in all places. So I think this is where Paul goes directly after his critics. The expectation of the Corinthians would have been that someone who was being used by God would have looked much more like Titus or Vespasian or would have triumphed in the streets of Rome. God would bless ministers so that they would have splendor and radiance, much like Moses did. If you remember in Exodus 32, after he receives the commandments, I think 32 to 34, uh, Moses comes down from the mountain and his, his face is shining because he has been in the presence of God. And Paul actually brings up that situation later in chapter 3. Uh, so it's very likely that Moses is on his mind. But the point of Paul's ministry is not to show his greatness or to show his might or to show that he conquers. It's to make known the knowledge of Christ in all places. 
Paul is not concerned about his face shining. He's not concerned about himself being radiant or being elite or being exalted. He wants to make Christ radiant. And that's what he explains in verse 15. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So it's possible Paul transitions to this, these metaphors of fragrance and aroma at the end of verse 14 and verse 15 and 16. So it's likely that Paul is actually now referencing um, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. So Leviticus 1.9, for example, this is especially in Leviticus, this is all throughout Leviticus. Uh, he says, or Leviticus says, And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's used throughout Leviticus, and then Paul also uses this language throughout his ministry and his writings, especially in regards to uh, sacrificial ministry. So Philippians 4.18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then he uses the same terminology in regards to Christ's sacrifice in Ephesians 5.2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul considers his own life as the fragrant aroma that rises up to God. Christ is the sacrifice. Paul's life is the aroma that goes up to God. So Scott Hafeman says that the knowledge of God manifest in the cross of Christ is now being revealed through Paul's suffering among those whom he sent. So, so the knowledge of God, which is brought forth in the cross of Christ, is being revealed in Paul's suffering. So Paul's suffering further reveals the knowledge of God that, that is in the suffering cross of Christ. So I think that this, this helps explain Colossians 1.24, where, where Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Paul is saying that God is using his life of suffering as a picture of the gospel. His suffering pictures what Christ went through on the cross. His suffering is the fragrance of Jesus' sacrificial death. And Paul points to the impact of God's revelation through him in verses 15 and 16. So the thing is, is this, this impact that Paul's life has varies depending on the hearers. So he is a fragrance to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So, so to those who are perishing, he is a fragrance from death to death. To those who are being saved, he is a fragrance from life to life. So, so for those who are perishing, it, it leads to death. For those who are being saved, it leads to life. So the way a person responds to Paul's ministry reveals their status. Those who are being saved recognize the validity of Paul's ministry and his suffering, and those who are perishing reject Paul's life and do not see how he can be. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. I think these verses, as I noted in the beginning, are important for identifying Paul's purpose. He's not desperately trying to get people to like him or respect his ministry. His concern is the Corinthians, and he is very concerned that they haven't actually accepted and believed the gospel. He's very concerned that their actions and their rejection of his ministry is showing that really what they reject is Jesus Christ, that they reject the cross. So it's because of his life and his ministry is a picture of the gospel. To reject Paul's suffering and regard him as an insufficient apostle is to reject Christ and regard his sacrifice as insufficient. So uh, Scott Hafeman, who I mentioned earlier, draws a good comparison that I think really ties together the message of the cross and the message of the cross through Paul's life. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 18, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So so Paul preaches the gospel so that the cross of Christ would maintain its power, And Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 2 makes known the cross of Christ. And what we're going to see at the end of this passage is that it's through the power of God that his ministry is sufficient. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So the word of the cross, Paul is the aroma of Christ. And those who are perishing, Paul's fragrance is from death to death for those who are perishing. The word of the cross is the power of God, though, to those who are being saved. And in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul's life is the fragrance that brings life by means of the power of God. So so Paul considers his life itself as presenting the gospel. The way he lives, the way he suffers, the way he gives himself up, his weakness is a picture of, of the cross. So it's, it's not just in his preaching. So it's also in the way he lives. And to reject his life as he is a minister of the gospel, to reject his gospel because of his suffering, is to say, well, how could, how could I believe in a suffering Savior? If you can't accept a suffering apostle, how can you accept a suffering Savior? And that's why Paul is so concerned for the Corinthians. Because the cross of Christ shapes Paul's life and his message. All of that served to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life proclaimed the message of Jesus' suffering and death. So if the Corinthians reject him, reject his ministry because he suffers, they're revealing that they are actually those who are perishing rather than those who are being saved. And that's devastating to Paul, who cares deeply for this church. So obviously, if they follow this way of thinking, it results in death. Because what we have to understand is, is the gospel always works. It's, it's, never, it's never neutral. It always does something. 
So it either re, it, it always reveals the character of human hearts. The, the preaching and demonstration of the gospel, Linda Belleville says, causes either life or death to be increasingly rooted in the hearer. So when you, when you hear the gospel message, your, your heart will either be softened more and more to the truth that is Jesus Christ, if you are those who are being saved, or you'll be continually hardened against the gospel. And you will be hardened against pictures of the gospel, like Paul's life was. So Paul desperately wants the Corinthians' hearts to be molded and to be continually drawn to the cross of Christ and to rest in the power of their Savior. So the gospel is made known in weakness. Paul's weakness is specifically that he suffers as a captive, as a slave for Jesus Christ. And that is how the gospel is made known, because Jesus Christ suffered in weakness. He did not come in great power. This this time of year, we celebrate the, the king of the universe coming as a baby and being celebrated by shepherds and donkeys and lambs in a stable. The gospel is a message of weakness. Because we have a Savior who accomplished our salvation through weakness and humiliation and suffering. So I guess the, the question that Paul had for his church in Corinth was how do they view ministry? How do they view the church? How do they view what gospel work looks like? So I think the question is the same for us. How do we view the church? Why do we come to church every week? Is it because we like the teaching or we like worship or we like to fellowship or because we get a lot out of it? Or we don't go to churches because we don't get a lot out of it? The gospel is not a message to make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. And neither is the ministry of the church. The gospel message is is rugged and rough. It involves a Savior who was crucified on a Roman cross. And it involves followers who suffered and were killed on behalf of the spreading of the gospel. So we are not here to meet our needs or do what is best for us. We are here to proclaim the truth of the gospel. We, like Paul, should be pictures of the gospel. And I'm not saying that we need to be in the same suffering as Paul. Paul was not calling the Corinthians to that at all. He was saying, you you can't reject me because I suffer. But what we should be is people of humility who are willing to walk in weakness because our Savior walked in weakness. We should be people who don't seek our own power and might and authority. In those ways, we should be like Paul. And when we do suffer, we should recognize that God can work through that suffering. God can work through that weakness. So so if you you feel weak in areas of your life, if you are suffering or you, you feel incapable or insufficient, what the rest of this passage is going to talk about is that that doesn't matter because it's the power of God that works through you. It's the power of God that makes us sufficient to spread the gospel. Is that we are commissioned by God as his church to make him known in the nations. 
And that's exactly where we, where we want to be. We want to be weak. We want to know our weaknesses. Because as Paul says later in 2 Corinthians, is that, for when I am weak, then I am strong, because then Christ is working through him. So that power of the gospel is the second aspect of how God makes the gospel known. Makes it known through his power. So this, this is a high and difficult calling that Paul has. He wants to make the gospel known. He wants to make Christ known to all nations. And he has to do so by means of suffering. So Paul naturally asks the question at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? So we see that the gospel is made known through the power of God, as he'll explain in verse 17. So this question, who is sufficient for these things? Many people, commentators, think, think that the, question, the um, implied answer to the question is, well, no one is sufficient. And while that, that's true to a degree, I, I think Paul's implied answer to the Corinthians is like, I am sufficient. I am sufficient to carry out this ministry. You should look to my life as a picture of the gospel. You should listen to my words as a proclamation of the gospel. He is sufficient to carry out the, cat, the task because of the power of God. So I mentioned earlier that, that Paul uh, may, be, may have Moses in his mind. And I, I think this is the case because of this question. He says, who is sufficient for this? Um, and, and Moses, actually, when, when he's called to ministry, asks ask the same question, essentially. So it's in Exodus 4.10, but if, if you remember, in, in Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And while he's talking to Moses, he calls him to, to bring out the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, gives them all this stuff. And then uh, Moses uh, replies uh, at the beginning of, of chapter 4, he says, well, people aren't going to listen to me. What, what do I do if they don't listen to me? What do I do if they don't believe me? Um, and God, God says to him, well, well here's, the, here's these three signs. If the people of Israel don't believe you, you can make your staff turn into a snake. You can put your hand in your cloak and it'll become leprous and then put it back in and it won't be leprous. And if they don't believe those two things, you can make the water of the Nile turn to blood. So Moses is like, okay, that's great. But then in Exodus 4.10, he replies, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. But the Greek version of the Old Testament that Paul likely quotes throughout his writing says, oh my Lord, I am not sufficient. It's the same exact word that Paul uses here, writing in Greek. So Moses continues, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. So God replies to Moses, which would be absolutely terrifying. He says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So God is basically like to Moses, it doesn't matter that you can't speak or that you're not sufficient because I am the one who speaks through you. I am the one who gives you the words to say. Which is a side note, Moses has the gall again to say, please, Lord, send someone else. And then the text actually says, God got mad. <laughs> so, but, but this is what Paul is pulling from, and he actually refers to this in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. 
He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. So Paul is saying, I am sufficient, not not because I myself am sufficient, but because God makes me sufficient. God speaks through me. God gives me the power to live my life as a reflection of the gospel. So you're not just rejecting me, Corinthians. You're rejecting God working through me. For Paul is sufficient by God's grace. God has given him this ministry, and he's telling the Corinthians that it is actually his suffering as an apostle, because it's a picture of the cross of Christ, that makes him sufficient through the power of God, not by Paul. So verse 17 supports his claim for sufficiency. So he first explains who he is not. It says, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. So again, like I said at the beginning, one of the charges against Paul was that uh, his message was worth what the Corinthians paid for it. Absolutely nothing. Um, so. Paul's response is that these opponents or these critics who are charging for this message or whoever the Corinthians are referring to or getting their information from is Paul Paul's saying, well, well, these people are suspicious in their dealings. He calls them peddlers of God's word. So, so retailers in the marketplace were, were known to be dishonest in their dealings. Uh, so oftentimes in ancient writings, this analogy was used of teachers and philosophers who used their, their eloquence or their rhetorical ability to, to con other people. So Lucian, Lucian, not solution, <laughs> Lucian was a second century rhetorician, um, and he says, uh, quoting him, philosophers sell their knowledge like the wine merchants do their wine. The majority of them, the same word as that Paul uses for so many, the hoi polloi, uh, the majority of them mixing it with water and adulterating it and giving it a short measure. So Paul is saying that these teachers are, are deluding this teaching. They're deluding the message of the gospel. They're, they're, they're making it different so that it pleases your ears, so that they appear more eloquent and rhetorical, and that you will have all this benefit in your life. So our, our friends who are involved in the health and wealth gospel really need to pay attention to this passage, because Paul directly attacks that mode of thinking. So their motives for preaching were greed, and their method of preaching was a false message that tickled the ears of the hearers. And Paul calls them out very directly for that. But Paul says that he is not this way. His life and sacrifice for the sake of the Corinthians reveals that. He explains his motives, his power, and his accountability for speaking in Christ. He says, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul has pure motives. He's not motivated by greed. He desires that the Corinthians know Christ, not that he is exalted. And he shows the origin of his proclamation. The reason he is sufficient to be a minister of the gospel is that he is commissioned by God. And not only that, he speaks in Christ in the sight of God. So it's Paul saying, God holds me accountable for this message that I'm preaching. It's not 
these peddlers of God's word. It's not even you, Corinthians. It's not even the apostles in Jerusalem. It's God himself who holds me accountable for my work, for my ministry. So Paul's ministry will be vindicated at God's judgment. So the Corinthians need to consider where their hearts are at. Are they those who are being saved? Or are they those who are perishing? Will they too, with Paul, stand accountable to God at the judgment and and stand victorious in Jesus Christ, who is the conquering general? The one that we glorify and that our lives are meant to magnify, to spread and make known his gospel. So God makes known the gospel through weakness by his power and authority. And I think this is the message we need to hear, especially as we turn over the calendar to 2018. We must seek God's power. So as I mentioned before, the the difference between the first century and now is not the sinfulness or the evil things that are done. It's the degree to which we rely on the power of God to act and to move. So Paul understood this. He understood that it wasn't his ability. It wasn't his strength. It wasn't his ability to speak. So in 2018, my challenge for us as a church is to be weak. To be very weak before our God. Let's not rely on our power or strength. Let's embrace weakness for the sake of the gospel. And let us make known the power of God through our weakness. Let us seek God to do something in Woodhaven Bible Church and in our community that can only be credited to him. So let's be a church of prayer in 2018 where every single one of us, not just the leaders, not just Nathan, seek God diligently to act and to move because he can move way better than any of us can. And he's way stronger than we are at our strongest point. So we might as well be weak and trust him with our whole hearts. So let us, like Paul was, be the gospel as we speak Christ and as we emulate Christ in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we learn to be weak before you. Um, And Lord, may we seek your power in our life to move in this church and to move in this community. God, may we be completely reliant on you and not at our strength or our knowledge or our capability. Let us only rely on the cross of Christ. And let us remember that that cross, the conquering of sinfulness and death, was accomplished through humiliation, shame, weakness, and death. But our Savior has conquered, and he is the one we serve and is the one that we glorify. So God, let that be our goal and be what we pursue. We pray in his name. Amen.